we'll go ahead and dismiss our kids this morning to Kids Church. Every time we sing that song, every time I hear that song, I can't, I can't help but, but remember that song being played just a few years ago at my dad's funeral. And even, even now, I don't fully understand why God did, why God allowed you know, the death of my dad, I, I you know, there, there are some things that, that I believe that, that we won't know this side of glory. Uh, whenever Job came to the end of Job chapter 37, Job asked God for 36 chapters. And when God finally answers Job, he doesn't say, oh, well, Job, this is why I did what I did. You know, I, I wanted to prove your faithfulness. I wanted, you know, God answers Job and says, I'm God, and you're not. Where were you when I hung the foundations? And, and as, I, as we sing that song, it is well, there's a reality that there are some things that we will never understand. It's very fitting this morning, we're, we're talking about how the ways of God are unsearchable, but the will of God is very knowable. We may not understand why God does what He does. We may not understand every aspect of, of His actions, but we know His character. And God's faithfulness will inform our future. And our faith in God will inform our future. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 26. 1 Samuel chapter 26, we're... We're coming on the very heels of 1 Samuel chapter 25, and we talked about last week, we talked about how God delivered David from his greatest foe, his greatest enemy. As David stood, he faced Saul, he faced Goliath, he faced the Philistines, and David's greatest enemy was not Saul who threw a spear at his head, who tried to kill him time and time again. David's greatest enemy was not Goliath, who stood nine feet nine inches tall. David's greatest enemy was not the army of God's enemies, the Philistines. David's greatest enemy was himself. And God, last week we looked at how, how God, through the pleas of a woman, through the, through the, the, the ambition and the the wisdom of a woman named Abigail, how God delivered David from himself. Now what we didn't talk about was the end of chapter 25. Right after, right after David is delivered from himself, and David does not go and he does not slaughter Nabal, and, and he allows God to do what God's going to do, he tells Abigail, he says, thank you for keeping me from myself. Thank you, God has used you to, to keep me from slaying innocent blood. Immediately after that, the text tells us that, that Nabal was killed. That he had some kind of stroke, some kind of heart attack. We don't know what, uh, whether he, was, he fell into some kind of coma. But ten days after David decides not to kill Nabal, God takes matters into his own hands. And God takes care of Nabal. And not only does God slaughter 
And does God exercise judgment and wrath upon the enemy of David? But then God gives all of the wealth of Nabal into the hands of David by making Abigail, the sole heir to Nabal's fortune, David's wife. So, back up and let's put things into perspective. David has a plan. He says, I'm going to go and I am going to kill Nabal. He wouldn't give me the provisions that I wanted. He wouldn't, he wouldn't. Uh, I simply asked for some bread for taking care of his sheep and his shepherds while they were in the wilderness. Nabal said, I'm not giving you anything. And so David said, come on, boys, let, let's go. If he's not going to give it, we're going to take it because after all, we're entitled to it. And so David picks up arms. Abigail meets him. He says, she says, my Lord, David, don't do what you're about to do. Here, here is all of the provisions that, that, that you're looking for. Here is what I am giving you. And as Nabal, as Nabal refused to give David, Abigail gives her. Abigail gives to him. And, and, and so not only does David receive all of the provisions that, that, that he wanted, but then right after that, right after that, David's enemy is destroyed. And then God gives David not only the provisions, but he gives him all of the wealth of Nabal. Now let me ask you this. Whose plan was better, David's or God's? Sometimes in our lives, we think by taking matters into our own hands that we know what's best for us. God's ways, doing God's will, God's way, is always best. It's interesting. I believe that David wrote Psalm 138 immediately, or not necessarily immediately, but I believe that David wrote Psalm 138 remembering this instance. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 138, verse 7. We're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 26 in just a second, I promise. Psalm 138, verse 7. God writes, through the hand of David, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Thy loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the work of thy hands. If you go back, verse 7, it says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. David was walking in the midst of trouble and he says, you will stretch forth your hands against my enemies and your right hand will save me. I believe that as David wrote that, he was remembering what took place here in Psalm, I'm sorry, in 1 Samuel chapter 25 and 26. So let's read what takes place in verse 20, chapter 26. Verse 2, we're going to start in verse 2. Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, and having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Now Saul has already said, look David, I'm not going to come at you anymore. I'm going to leave you alone. So in verse 2, we see how long that, that commitment lasted. 
Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel in search of David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul camped in the hill of Hakaliah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road. And David was staying there in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul had came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies. And he knew that Saul was definitely coming. Then David arose and camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army, and Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. And David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite, Nabishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me into Saul's camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were lying around him. And then Abishai said to David, Today... God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke. I will not need to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed without guilt? Verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 10. Then David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come that he dies. Or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep. Because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. And David called to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king your Lord. And this thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die because you did not guard the Lord. The Lord's anointed. Now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that is at his head. Then Saul, recognizing David's voice, said, My son, David. And David said, It is my voice, my Lord the king. He also said, Why then is my Lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my Lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is, but if it is men cursed, are they before the Lord? For they have driven me out today that I should have no attachment to the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go and serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall upon the ground away from the presence of my Lord, for the the king of Israel has come out and searched for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. And Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son, to David. I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight this day. For behold, I have played the fool. I have committed a serious error. And David answered and said, Behold, the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. And the Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, and I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so my life will be highly valued in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me from all my distress. Let's pray. God, may we see your faithfulness. 
May our faith be informed by Your goodness and Your grace. May we see the hand of God and the providence of our Savior through this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I've already summarized the end of chapter 25 for you, and David understood long before it was ever written the words of Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, we see the hand of God. We see that Paul writes to the church in Rome and he says, do not take vengeance into your hands. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Paul writes this. He says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping burning coals upon his head. Do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now this is a principle that Paul writes to the church in Rome in the first century. David understood this principle long before it was ever written. David understood that the vengeance of God is so much greater and so much more complete than our own vengeance. But such is the human condition that when people wrong us, when they are our enemies, we want to get we want, we want justice, we want vengeance, we want to take matters into our own hands. But David understood that the judgment and the vengeance of God is greater than our vengeance. And we see this so completely at the end of chapter 25. As David chose not to pursue, after Abigail entreated him, David chose not to pursue Nabal. Not only did God give him provisions and providence, but God gave him all of Nabal's earthly possessions including his wife. The judgment of God is so much greater than our own judgment. David has seen God's hand and is confident of God's providence. I want us to understand that David was aware of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. He was aware of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He was aware of the covenant that God had made with Moses, which is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant says in in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that, that as God is Abraham's God, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. So for David, his enemies were the enemies of God. And I want us to understand this, church. Our enemies are the enemies of God. Not because we're fighting on behalf of God, but because God is fighting on our behalf. And so those who threaten the children of God are His enemies. My wife, God bless her, is the epitome of an Italian mother. If you've ever... Uh, if you've ever known any Italians, you will understand exactly what I mean. Uh, the worst thing you can possibly do to an Italian woman is to mess with her babies. <laughs> and 
And this is, this is a reality, and, and I, have, I have had to talk my wife down off the ledge many times whenever her babies come home from school crying or, or somebody has been mean to or somebody has mistreated her babies, and, and, and I have had to restrain her and say, let, let me go, let me take care of this, because I know that if she goes out there, that, that, that we, you know, we're probably going to be in the news you know, there's probably going to be uh, uh, charges that are filed. The, the police may, may show up because hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Hell hath no fury like an Italian mama whose babies have been, have been mistreated. And, and I want us to understand, I want us to understand that God loves his people and his children infinitely more than those Italian mamas love their babies. And the enemies of God are those who mistreat His people. Those who have come against God's chosen people. And God's judgment is far greater than ours. Let us not repay evil for evil, but let us repay evil for good. I want us to notice something that's different about chapter 26 is chapter 24. Remember, we see God has, um, David has already spared the life of Saul once. Saul came into the cave. He covered his feet. David chose not to kill Saul, but he restrained. Notice this very similar instance. David and Abishai sneak into the, the camp of Saul. He's asleep. He sees his spear laying right there. Abishai says to David, hey, David, just give me one shot. I don't need more than one. Just give me one shot. I'll take care of this guy. I will take the spear and I'll drive it through his head and I will nail him to the ground right here, right now. Just, just, just give me one chance. Look at David's response in verse 10. Verse 9, David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? Look at verse 10 though. Verse 10 speaks volumes. David says, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come that he dies. Or he'll go down to battle and perish. What is David saying? David is saying, I have learned from my mistake in chapter 25. God is going to take care of his enemies. I don't have to kill him. I don't have to strike out my hand against him. Because the Lord is going, David has been informed by his past. The faithfulness of God will inform David's future. Now this is what I want us to understand in this. David is, is, is speculating. He's saying, God's going to take care of this. Either he's going to drop dead like Nabal, or he's going to send him into battle and he's going to get killed, or something else is going to happen. David is speculating about how God will accomplish His purpose. And church, this is tremendous freedom for us. We can speculate about the ways of God because the ways of God in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, the Scripture tells us that the ways of God are unknowable. They're unsearchable. It says, Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable are His ways. We cannot always know the ways of God. How has God delivered in the past? I just want us to think about this for just a moment. God has delivered by taking the Red Sea 
and splitting it and allowing his people to cross on dry ground. God has taken and delivered the nation of Israel whenever the Jordan River was above flood stage and three miles wide, three miles wide, God has dried up the land underneath the Jordan River and allowed his people to cross. God has, through the battle of Joshua, God has caused the sun to stand still. God has taken a young boy and with a stone and a sling slayed a giant. God has taken a marching band and destroyed the walls of a city. God has taken Gideon and his 300 men against some 60, 120,000 Midianites. And God has encircled the camp with Gideon and his 300 men, and they were armed with this, a torch, a water pot, and a horn. And God has destroyed 120,000 men with a torch, a water pot, and a horn. How unfathomable are the ways of God. And this, these are just a few of the ways that God, has, that God has delivered. God has delivered the people of Israel through the mouth of a donkey. How many ways has God, and how much, how much creativity is there in the deliverance of God? And so it's okay, church, for us to speculate about how God will deliver. And I want to encourage us to speculate about how God will deliver because His ways are, are unsearchable. But this is what I don't want us to miss. While his ways are unsearchable, his will is not. His will is very knowable. His will is very revealed. So we can, as we are speculating about the goodness and the grace of God, we can speculate about how God will will heal my marriage, how God will get us through this difficult time, how God will solve our financial difficulty, how God will will repair my my relationship with my son or daughter, how God will will bring back that wayward child. We We can speculate about this, but what we cannot speculate about is what does God desire for me to do because His desire for us is obedience. We may not know how God's going to heal our marriage, but we do know that God has called us as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church. David is speculating how God is going to hand Saul over to him, but he is not speculating about his role. My role is to be obedient. It's to do what God has called me to do. My role is not to figure it out. My role is to do what I know is right. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. But this is the will of God. By doing what's right, you will silence the foolishness of ignorant men. We may not know how God's going to work. We may not know the, the, the intricacies of God's plan, but we know His revealed will to us in His Word. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands that we should not repay evil for evil, but we should repay evil with good, that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, that we should love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. that we should demonstrate kindness and grace because we have been demonstrated kindness and grace, that we should forgive others because we have been forgiven much. We may not know how God will deliver. We may not know how God will work, but we know what God's will is for us, that we should be obedient 
to His revealed will. The ways of God are indeed imaginative, yet the will of God is clearly revealed to us. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 26 and answer this question. How is David and Abishai able to sneak past 3,000 soldiers to go and kill or go and, and penetrate the fortification of Saul? Look at verse Look at verse 12. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head, and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Now I want us to to understand what has taken place here. There are 3,000 men. As 3,000 men are encamped, the probability of, of none of them having to get up and go to the restroom, the probability of none of them being stirring, none of them, I mean, if you've ever been with more than one man in a cabin or something like that, you know that the chances are that, that they're probably going uh, to be cutting a few cords of wood. Uh, I, I used to, one of, the, one of my favorite memories growing up was going hunting with my dad. And as we would go hunting, we would oftentimes uh, be in a little rat hole motel that we paid $30 a night to sleep in, and, and we were going hunting, or we'd be in a cabin, or we'd be in a, a bunkhouse or a travel trailer, and, and I love my dad, but good God did the man snore. <laughs> and, and I knew that whenever we were going, that, that, that we would go, and, and I, was just, I would just resign myself to the fact that, you know, I, I wasn't going to sleep. And, and I know very well now why, why my mom had him sleep on the other end of the house, not just in another room, but, but he slept on the other end of the house because as he snored, the rafters would shake. And, and the reality is, is that there were 3,000 men sleeping in close quarters. There were probably a lot of people like my dad who just snored. If you've ever been on a retreat with a bunch of men, you know that, that there's not a lot of sleep that goes on because you can't sleep because there's always one guy. It doesn't matter how big the group is. There's one guy that, that, that just keeps everybody else awake. And the reality is, is that there are 3,000 men. And 3,000 men guarding encircled around the king. And David and Abishai are able to sneak past 3,000 men who were trained at guarding and protecting the king, and none of them, none of them were awake because somebody was snoring. None of them had to get up and use the restroom. None of them had, were thirsty and had to get up in the middle of the night. None of them. 3,000 men. Why? Because the Lord had caused a deep sleep to fall upon them. The providence of God. Again, David is witness to the providence of God. And at times of great distress, sometimes something as small as being able to not wake up one of the armies of God, that very small encouragement, 
that David was able to sneak in, steal the spear, steal the jug, and retreat without being seen, without being captured. A very small encouragement in times of great distress. I want to encourage you this, as you are in the midst of hardship and trial and difficulty, look for the small blessings of God. David is still in the wilderness. He's still running for his life. And God gives him small blessings. Somewhat insignificant reminders that I am with you, I am providing for you, I am caring for you. David then wakes up the next morning. He calls out to Abner, calls out to King Saul, and he wakes them up from their sleep and, and, and he says, hey guys, I could have killed you again and I didn't. Who are you? You should all be court-martialed. You should all be, be arrested. You should all be, be put to death because of your inability to protect your king. And he's absolutely right. Abner stands up and he says, what are you talking about? He says, oh, go look, I I just stole the king's spear, the very symbol of Saul's power. Remember all of the, the attempts at David's life in the past was all at the hands of what? Saul's spear. How many times did Saul hurl his spear at David in an attempt to kill him? This is the spear of Saul is the very symbolic embodiment of Saul's threat and Saul's attack on David's life. David is able to take that symbolic representation of Saul's attack on his life. David says, where's the spear? Where's the water jug? And then Saul stands up with his his confession. Oh, David, my son, I am so grateful that you spared my life. I will never attack you again. And what does David say? He says, Saul, sit down and shut up. I'm not listening to what you're saying. I want us to notice that. David cuts off Saul. Saul is about to go into this long speech about about how he's so grateful that his life was spared and how, how David is his son and how much Jonathan loves him and this covenant and yada, yada, yada. And after one verse... David says, Saul, shut up. This will take place. Look, verse 21. Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son of David, for I will not harm you again because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and I've committed serious error. He doesn't even get to tell him his conclusion. He just He's in the midst of it. And David answered and said, Behold, the spear of the king. Now let one of your men come get it. In the midst of Saul's rambling, David said, Saul, send somebody come get your spear. David is not trusting and not resting in the promises of this world. He is not resting in the reality that Saul will provide for him sanctuary. He is not resting in the reality that there is anything in this world that can can provide for him safety and security David understood, understands that nothing in this world can satisfy. Nothing in this world can protect. Nothing in this world can provide apart from the hand of Almighty God. It's interesting, David's son, Solomon, will come to this realization only after 
He has exhausted every possible means of fulfilling and satisfying self with the things of this world. As Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes, he writes in chapter 2, he says, I've had it all, I've tried it all, I have built for myself palaces, I've had women, I've had entertainment, I've had all of the choicest of food and wine and everything. I have had everything this world has to offer and it has left me empty. David realized that here in chapter 26. The security of money, the security of the the throne, the security of, of everything that this world has to offer will leave you empty. The promises of this world are fleeting. Young people, hear me this. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how fulfilling your job is. It doesn't matter how perfect your relationship is. Nothing that this world has to offer will satisfy your soul. God has created you with a need and desire for Him. We are the image bearers of God. We are made in His image. And as we are made in His image, we are made with a, with a God-given desire to relate to our, to, to, to relate to our Creator. God created us and He created us with His image. And in that creation, God has designed us to have a relationship with Him, a personal intimate relationship and that relationship has been thwarted has been perverted has been distorted by sin and the promise of God is that the only way that we can be satisfied the only way that we can be fulfilled the only way that we can know God is through the person of Jesus through his death through his burial and through his resurrection and we can search out this world and we can fall prey to the victims and the promises of this world that if you just have more money and have more success and have more friends and have a great relationship then you will be satisfied but the promises of this world will always leave us wanting more david rests not in the promises of this world but in the promises of his god He says, Saul, I don't need your promises. I'm resting in the promises of my God. Look at how he ends. Look at how he ends in verse 24. Now behold, how as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued where? In the sight of my Lord, and may he deliver me from all my distress. That's where David rests. Not in the promises of Saul, not in the promises of the throne, not in the promises of the creature comforts of this world, but in the promises of God that I will never leave you nor forsake you, that I will be your sustenance, that I will provide for you, that I will provide for you comfort, that I will provide for you grace, that in the end, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's where we as his people should rest. Not in the things of this world, but in the promises of the grace that is given to us in Christ. This morning, if you have been 
pursuing what this world has to offer. Let me remind you. Rest, comfort, peace does not come from this world. Jesus said, this world is not our home. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would take up arms. The comfort of God, the peace of God, the fulfillment that is in God comes through a relationship with Jesus. This morning, if you have been resting and trusting in the promises of this world, let me invite you this morning. Come and rest in the promises of God. Confess to Him that you need the comfort and the satisfaction that only comes through knowing Christ as your Savior. Just a few moments as we sing a hymn of invitation, I'll invite you to come. Maybe this morning you simply need to rest in God's faithfulness. Maybe this morning you simply need to speculate about how God is going to demonstrate His grace and His mercy in your life and then trust in His revealed will and do what He has called us to do. During this time of invitation, I pray that you may find yourself obedient to His Word. Let's pray. God, as we look at the life of David, we see Your grace and Your mercy. We see Your goodness has been demonstrated to us through the death, burial, and resurrection. We see that the promises of God are far greater than the promises of this world. That the promises of this world Leave us empty. The promises of God are everlasting. We thank You that in Christ You have fulfilled the promise to give us eternal life and to satisfy and fulfill our every desire and our every need. But I believe there is someone here this morning who's been pursuing and lusting after the promises of this world. God, may you draw them to yourself this morning. There's someone here this morning who simply needs to be encouraged by your faithfulness. They need to speculate and imagine how unfathomable your ways of deliverance and providence are, yet trust in your will. You've called them to be obedient. Lord, this morning, may you speak to our hearts. May you encourage us to obedience. And may we revel in your promises. In Jesus' name we pray.